to be uh, kind of walking through Isaiah. Last week we were with Amos. And so if you want to turn there, we will be looking at uh, quite a few passages uh, in Isaiah. We'll start off in chapter eight. And so as you're turning there, uh, one of the things I, I try not to uh, talk about this uh, too much. Uh, because it's a big part of my life. And so some of you know some of this. I'll just give a real kind of brief introduction. Some of you, uh, this might be uh, new, but I'm a part of a, of a running group. Uh, it's primarily Nazarene pastors. And uh, in October, we, this is my third time to go, this past October, to go to the Grand Canyon. And the goal is to run across the Grand Canyon. You go down, come back up, and then turn around and do it again. And so the the there's multiple ways to go across the Grand Canyon and back. The, the route that we take is 50 miles and our goal is to do it in 24 hours. Um, and one of the things that we do as a part of that is, is we have a guy, he's a sheriff's deputy in Atlanta. Uh, his name's Frank. And Frank uh, drives a van around to the other side. So if you get to the other side and you're hurt or uh, last, last year they had, it was very hot. So there quite a few people that were having some heat issues that you have kind of a, an out because in the Grand Canyon, there is no out. Uh, if you go down in there, there's only one way out and that's on your feet. Uh, you can't just like, you know, it's not hiking on the Appalachian Trail where you could just find a road, call somebody to come get you. It doesn't work that way. And uh, so we have that. Well, this year we had some, quite a few people going. And so uh, Lewis Stark, who's a pastor in Georgia and who's Frank's pastor, uh, Lewis called me and he said, hey, we need another Frank. I think this year we need two. And I said, well, you know, my father-in-law, his name is Frank because we have to restrict it to people named Frank. And so my father-in-law went with us this year. So he drove a vehicle around too. And it made this year a little bit different to have my father-in-law there. Uh, and it made it more special in a lot of ways because he was there when I came out on both sides of the canyon. But another piece of it that kind of changed it for me was having somebody there who really knows nothing about what we do. And he would make comments to me about, man, y'all, y'all really planned this out. Like, I just kind of thought y'all showed up and went into the canyon. Like every little detail is planned out. And we would have these conversations as we were kind of all preparing different things we were trying or things we wanted to do. And, and he was a part of all these conversations. Well, one of those big conversations that we have is uh, we, we plan out when we start. Now, that doesn't sound like that big of an issue, but Primarily, or usually we would start at 4 a.m. We stayed two hours away from the Grand Canyon. So 1 a.m., you wake up, you get ready, you hop in the car by two, you're at the Grand Canyon by four, and you're off. This year, we were able to actually start or to stay on the rim of the Grand Canyon. It helped, COVID helped us quite a bit there because not as many people were traveling. So we got cabins. So we were there on the rim. So we started at 3 a.m. So my alarm clock was set for 2.10, which seemed like I was sleeping in. So 2.10, hop up, put in contacts, put on my clothes, put on my pack, and by 3.05, we were in the canyon. Well, why, why, was, why is start time such a big deal? The reason is, is the goal is to do this in under 24 hours. And so there is a likelihood that you could be in the dark for 10 to 14 of those 24 hours. In the dark. And so the reason we start at 3 a.m. is if the sun comes up that time of year, about 7 a.m., that you start off with about four hours of darkness. The sun comes up, you hike during the day. Then when you're coming back, the sun comes down or goes down. And I had about, so I had about 10 hours in the darkness, four in the morning, six in the afternoon or six in the evening. It, it's just about breaking that up. So why, why is that so important? Because the reason it's so important is, is that 
It's pretty simple. Running in the dark is terrible. It's not fun. I brought with me my headlamp this morning. Thought I would wear it the rest of my sermon. No. So here's just my, this is my, one of my headlamps. You have to have many because the batteries run out. And um, so this is one of them I carry with me because y'all want me to wear this. So when you put on your headlamp, you turn it on right here. See? Ooh, yeah. Okay, we'll turn that off. But when you put on your headlamp, you, in the darkness, it creates, y'all can't listen to me seriously if I wear this, right? All right. So <laughs> if I, um, if you're wearing your headlamp, it creates this cone of light. So coming out of your headlamp, there's this cone of light and you have no idea of anything else that's going on around you. You're just in this cone of light. And when you do that, you know, for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, no big deal. But when it gets to be four hours, when it gets to be six hours, it is absolutely oppressive. You, you just, you can't even think straight. It is so terrible. Uh, yesterday I ran with Aaron and my friend Chris, who Chris is the, the guy that does 100s. He did a, he tried the Penhody 100. He got to mile 70 or mile 60 something, got hurt, got to mile 70 and had to, uh, to back out because most of us could make it to mile 70. And so Chris had to back out at mile 70. But one of the things he said to me before I even started talking about this yesterday was, he said, if you talk, if, if you go to a hundred mile race and in the morning when the guys and the girls are coming out of the darkness, he said, you can look into their eyes and see their souls because it is terrible. Being in the dark all night is terrible. It's oppressive. It is, uh, you kind of lose a sense of, of where you are. You lose a sense of the world. You lose a sense of what's, what's going on. And that little cone of light becomes the only thing that you know. Because darkness brings uncertainty. Dark, darkness brings uncertainty. You don't know what's out there. In the Grand Canyon, you don't know how big the drop-off is on the other side of the trail. You're just out there. Darkness also brings vulnerability. Part of the beauty of the Grand Canyon is at night, there's really only two things that can hurt you. There's only two things, rattlesnakes and mountain lions. Other than that, you're good. <laughs> and every noise you hear in the dark, it's not a mouse. It's not a squirrel, it's a mountain lion or a rattlesnake. Every sound. That's the only thing you can hear at night. Because that's the only thing that can really hurt you. And so you're out there and you are incredibly vulnerable. But darkness also presses in on us and tells us and reminds us over and over that we are all alone. That we have been isolated. And this darkness weighs in on us. And as the time goes by and as the miles go by, it just gets harder and harder and harder. Every step is harder and harder. And it's all about the darkness. Because see, part of what the darkness does when it presses in like that, the darkness presses in and it reminds us that we are by ourselves. It reminds us that we are all alone. It reminds us. It reminds us that that oppression brings an incredible amount of anxiety. It, it, it makes us worry and, and that, that weighs in on us and that darkness comes in on us. 
This morning, we're going to look at a passage about darkness. And and let me say this. I, I don't know what your darkness is. I don't know. But I know for some of us, when I use the words uncertainty, vulnerability, isolation, oppression, anxiety, you say, well, pastor, I, at some point you were talking about the Grand Canyon and at some point in that story, it ended up about me. Vulnerability, isolation, uncertainty, oppression, anxiety. And so Isaiah shows up to a people and he shows up to a people who these are words that they understood. And he comes to them and he comes to to proclaim God's truth to them. And as we talked about last week, what does a prophet do? A prophet does, does three things. They proclaim God's, what God is for. They proclaim what God is against and they proclaim the truth of God. And so Isaiah shows up and we pick up in chapter eight. Isaiah is is, uh, in chapter eight and he is talking about God's people. So chapter eight, verse 18, he is here talking about God's people. And he says, here I am with the children of the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. So he's talking to the people. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Why why are you you going to these other people? Shouldn't you be going to God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to his word, there will be no dawn for them. Verse 21, they wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they become enraged and looking up, they will curse their God and their king. They will look toward the earth and see, they will look to the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. The people who look to the land and don't look to their God will see only darkness. They wander around, they're upset, they're mad, they're irate, they're all of those things. These are the people that Isaiah is speaking to. These are the people who are wandering in darkness, who are lost. And so we we move to chapter nine, which is where our text will actually be today. Chapter nine, verse one says, nevertheless, The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, to the Galilee and to the Galilee of nations. Verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Now, before we go kind of into this text, let me just just talk very briefly to you a little bit about Isaiah, because it helps us to understand what's going on in Isaiah if we kind of understand kind of some some themes of Isaiah. 
Uh, last year we talked a little bit about Isaiah and I, I preached from third Isaiah, but Isaiah is, is broken into, there's kind of two camps. There's one camp that says Isaiah should be broken into two groups. There's another camp that says Isaiah should be broken into three groups. Uh, I don't know, one of the two, one of the two works. But so let me just kind of break it, break it down for you. The first one everybody kind of agrees on, chapters one through 39 is usually called first Isaiah. This morning, you're going to be looking at this passage, you're going to be like, Pastor, this is a passage for Advent, and Advent doesn't start till next week. So why are we in this passage today? Well, the reason we're in this passage today is we're going to walk through these, uh, we're going to walk through these prophets. We had Elijah two weeks ago, Amos last week, Isaiah this week, out of first Isaiah, Jeremiah next week, Ezekiel, and we're going to come back to Amos, but we're, we're going to come back to Isaiah, but we're going to be later on in Isaiah. So these are actually chronologically how we believe this was written, okay? So that's why we're in this order. So we come to Isaiah, and so first Isaiah is chapters one through 39, then we can, chapters 40 through 55 is second Isaiah, and then third Isaiah is 56 to 66. That's how kind of most, most people kind of break that up. But I tell you that because I want you to see one of the big themes of first Isaiah that I think is a huge theme and a huge piece of our understanding if we're going to understand what Isaiah is saying. What Isaiah believes is that Isaiah believes that God is in the midst of setting up his kingdom. That God is doing something here. And at the time, the way that God was doing this was through the people of Israel. Now, for us, we start Advent next week, and we're going to talk about these kind of things as we go through Advent. But part of what I want you to, to, to remember, and some of this you're going to be like, Pastor, you've told us this before. I know, but some people don't know this, or some people are going to be like, I've been here for 10 years, and I've never heard you say this. I have before. It's okay. But Advent, the reason we celebrate, or one of the big reasons we celebrate Advent in the way that we do is, is because Advent is a remembering of the first time that Christ came. Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means arrival. And so we celebrate that one time back here in history that Jesus came as a baby. Okay. We call that Christmas. Y'all, y'all, y'all know about that holiday. All right. So that's Christmas. We celebrate that Jesus came, but we also, as the people of God, we know that the day will come that Christ will do what? Come again. And so Advent, even though we kind of live over here and say Advent's about the time, the first time that Jesus came, we can't separate Advent from an understanding that we also celebrate in the hope of knowing that God's promises are true and that Christ will return again. And so, and I've, I've actually done this as an illustration before. It was years ago. I think I had Jackson and uh, Scout help me, but I, I talked about kind of this tension between the, these, these kind of these two arrivals of, of Christ, but we live in between these two things. Okay. Does that make sense? We live between Jesus came the first time and between the time Jesus came again. Everybody with me? If you didn't know that, that's just truth. All right. So that's where we live. We live in between these two moments. And Isaiah kind of comes to us and Isaiah helps us understand that if we live between these two moments, part of Isaiah's, and now Isaiah's writing before Christ came the first time. But when we read Isaiah, part of what Isaiah is saying to us is, if you're the people of God, then the way that you need to be living, it's not the way the world tells you to live. The way that you need to be living is to assume that Christ has already come again. 
Because when Christ comes again, he's going to set up his rule and reign. He's going to set up his kingdom. And so if we are the people of God that are living under the reign and the rule of God, of Christ, why wouldn't we go ahead and live as though Christ is on the throne? Because we believe that he is on the throne. And so Isaiah is making this argument. And so when you read these passages of Isaiah, then we kind of already begin to see some of this language. So let's flip back. It'll be up on the screen. Chapter two, I want you to see, this is one of those very, very famous passages of Isaiah, but you hear the way that he's talking about this. Okay. So I want you to hear this before we go a little bit deeper into chapter nine, because you'll, you'll see this language. So chapter two in Isaiah, he says, the vision that Isaiah, son of Amos." Saul concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse two, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. And on top of the mountains, there will be raised above the hills, all nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we will walk in his paths. So Isaiah is looking to the future and saying, there is a day that God is going, that Christ He's not using the Christ language because Christ isn't born yet, but there is a day that God's going to set up his kingdom and God's people are going to go up to it. So he says, uh, where are we? For instruction, verse, we're still in verse three. For instruction will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what is that going to look like? What is this kingdom going to look like? So verse four, he will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows. They, they will beat their instrument of war into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. So the day is going to come and the day will come when Christ returns, when God sets up his kingdom and war is done. And we are no longer going to be people that are going to be preparing for war. We are going to be people that are preparing to eat. And the instruments of war are going to become the instruments of, of how we eat, of how we plow. And so Isaiah is setting up this world for us. So we flip over, let's go over to chapter nine, go back into where we were. So I want you to kind of have this in your mind when we look at it, it'll all come together because I know Isaiah's kind of heavy, I understand. So let's go into chapter, uh, chapter nine, verse three. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. You have shattered their oppressive oak and the rod on their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor just as you did in the day of Midian. Every trampling boot of battle and the bloodiest garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. So that's, again, that's that language. What's, this is language of war and the language of war is being done away with. Verse six, some of you might've heard this verse before. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be named wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince, of peace. 
The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Did you hear it? For a child will be born for who? Us. That's you. That's me. And a son will be given for who? For us. A child will be born for us and a son will be given for us because us, we are the people that have it all together. We are the people with perfect homes and perfect children and perfect marriages. We've got it all figured out, right? No. We are the people who get trapped in the darkness. We are the people who walk in darkness and we are people who so many times live in darkness. We are the people that we read that Isaiah says about us. They'll wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. Looking upward, they'll curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven into thick darkness. That's us. We are the people of uncertainty, of vulnerability. We are the people who feel isolated. We are the people who feel anxious. So what, what do we do with our darkness? Because I don't believe that's the way that God wants us to live. I don't believe that's the reason that Christ came is for us to live in that darkness. And I don't believe that living outside of the darkness is something that just happens in the future. I believe it's something that can happen today. So what do we do? I think the first thing that we have to do is that we have to expose the darkness for what it is. We have to expose it for what it is. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 is one of those incredible verses that says to us, You flip over to it real quick. Where is it on this? Ephesians 6.12. I don't remember if I put it on the screen or not. Is there? Okay, there we go. For our struggle. Our struggle. Whose struggle? Our struggle. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But it's against rulers. Against authorities. Against cosmic powers of what? Darkness. What are we talking about this morning? Darkness, okay? Are you with me? Everybody, we can turn the lights off. We don't remember. All right, we're talking about darkness. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, against spiritual forces in the heavens, which starts off with us understanding that so many times in our darkness, we have to name it for what it is. We have to be able to call it and say, this is what's going on. That sometimes in my life when that darkness is oppressive, sometimes I have to just be able to say what it is. I have to be able to kind of walk through those things, to expose it for what it is. And then after I expose it for what it is, to be able to name it, to name it. 
to be able to answer the question, what causes this uncertainty? What causes me to feel vulnerable? Why do I react this way? Why do I feel isolated? And then to ask the question in those moments, are these things truth or are they lies? Because I think so many times we give power to the lies. We give powers to those forces. We give power to that darkness. And God says, I don't don't want you to give power to those things. Are these things that are to be feared? Or are they things that I can move through because I know who it is and I know where it comes from? So what is that darkness? Another piece of this uh, that I want to make sure kind of before we go to the, the next point on this is when we go through this story, you know, part of what we read, and you can go through Isaiah, and I've already read it to y'all, but in verse 22, he makes the statement, they'll look toward the earth, they'll see only distress, darkness, the gloom of affliction, they will be driven into thick darkness. Where, where are they looking? It says they're looking to the what? It's right there on the screen. The earth. Is that where we're supposed to be looking? No. So we get to this story, and and I want you just to kind of not miss how these stories are tied together. We are people who are incredibly tempted to just focus on our little cone of light. We don't see the other things. We're focused in on that little cone of light, and that's all that we ever see. And we flip over in our Bibles, and you can flip over to John chapter 7. And in John chapter 7, there's this incredible little story at the very end. The, the Pharisees, they're arguing there and they're, they're having this debate about who Jesus really is and they're having this debate and Nicodemus shows up. Remember who Nicodemus is? Nicodemus, this isn't the first time he's shown up in John's gospel. If you flip back to chapter three, the very first verse, Nicodemus shows up. Do you remember what time of day he showed up? At night. Is night dark or light? Dark. So Nicodemus shows up in the darkness and he shows up in this story at the very end of chapter seven and he shows up and he makes this statement to him of, you'll need to kind of pay attention to what's going on. And so we see these words and it says, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, that's what they're saying to Nicodemus. And then they say to Nicodemus, talking about Jesus, investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. No prophet arises. Now, if... If we go back to Isaiah, what does Isaiah say? The day is going to come when a prophet is going to come and the people who are in the darkness, chapter nine, verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. So when the prophet comes, guess what's going to happen? Those of us living in the darkness, the light is going to come because we spend our lives looking at the earth in our little cone of light. And the very next verse, now, some of you are looking at your Bibles and I'm gonna skip a whole story here. But if you look at your little footnotes, if you have a good Bible, it should have a little footnote that says chapter seven, verse 53 to eight verse something or other. That's not in the original text, okay? It is a story, it's the story of the woman caught in adultery We know that it's a Johannine story. It came from John, but we don't know where it falls in the gospel. 
Some texts have it here, some don't. So most of y'all have a little footnote and it'll say, you know, not in the original uh, text or something like that. So really the original chapter or the original layout, verse 52, jump over to 8, 12. This, is, this will be the next verse. So no prophet comes from Galilee, right? But what's the prophet going to do? He's going to show up in the darkness and he's going to be the great light. So the very next verse, Jesus spoke to them again to the Pharisees. They're all debating. Jesus spoke to them again. Says what? I, I'm, I'm that light. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And Isaiah says to us, the day's going to come that a prophet is going to come. And those of you walking in darkness, you will see the great light. In this darkness that you're living in, you, you don't have to live in it anymore. And so what do we continue to do as we walk through this? We expose the darkness for what it is. We name it. But we also, we also have to change our focus. We have to change our focus. We have to ask the question, what am I looking at? What, what am I looking at? Am I looking at earth? Am I looking at my little cone of light? Has my life been so reduced that all of these sounds, all this vulnerability, all of these other things, that's what I'm focusing on and I'm not focusing on something bigger of what God is doing? My life has been so kind of drawn down into this darkness that the darkness is oppressive, that brings me anxiety, that it weighs in on me. This year, as I was getting ready to go back into the canyon, I had 25 miles down, 25 to go. I put back on my vest. My father-in-law had resituated. He refilled all the water that I needed. I put it back on. I'm ready to leave. And I look over, and there was Pastor Kyle. Pastor Kyle came in about 20 minutes after I did, and Pastor Kyle was putting on his vest. And I said, Kyle, when are you leaving? And he said, hopefully in the next five minutes. And I was like, well, then I'll wait on you. And so I waited on Pastor Kyle, waited on Lewis. And the three of us went into the canyon together. Now, why was it worth waiting on him? Because I knew something. It was three in the afternoon. We had about three hours of daylight left. And then about six hours of darkness. And I knew that if I'm going into darkness... I don't want to go alone. So what I want any, more than anything else is to have somebody with me. And darkness has that isolating effect. Because I'm here to tell you that you aren't alone. That that darkness weighs in upon us and sometimes more than what we need to do more than anything else is to name it for what it is. To be able to say, you know what, on this Thanksgiving morning, I, I'm living in the darkness. 
And what, what I need more than anything else is to know that I'm not by myself in it. Because guys, there are people all across our church and phone calls and things. I mean, there are, there are people that need more than anything else is to know that they're not by themselves in this. The darkness that's weighing upon families in our church, you have no idea. I have, I have some idea, but I know I don't know everything. But there are people who desperately need you to be behind them. To be bringing light into their darkness. To walk along life with them. And this morning is closing. What, what I'd like to do is, and I know it's, it's weird, we're still coming out of COVID, we have all of those things going on, but what I would like more than anything else is for us to be able to sing together and for some of you that would just say, you know what, I'm, I'm in that darkness. I'm not comfortable sharing it and I don't want you to share it. That's, that's good. But to be able to come and just say, I want to find a place to pray so that I can tell the church, I need to the church to say, I'm behind you that I'm behind you. As I walked through the canyon that night, I, I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit faster than Kyle and Lewis and, and my knee was hurt, so I didn't wanna take any breaks. And so I kept moving. But the, the incredible thing that I knew the entire time was, as dark as it is, there is somebody behind me. That even though I might feel alone, if I sit down, I know that they're gonna catch up. And some of us, what we need more than anything else is for someone to just say, I'm behind you. I'm, I'm a part of this with you. And in closing this morning, I would love just the opportunity of, if anybody says, you know what, that's me. And what I need more than anything else is a church that says, I'm behind you. So what I'd like to do in closing this morning is just for us to be able to sing together. And if you wanna come and find a place to kneel and a place to pray, and sometimes I say, just find a place to pray. Nobody's gonna come bother you. Nobody's gonna come pray on you. That, I'm not gonna say that today. Because the first part of this call is to come and find a place to pray. The second part of the call is, is for the church to say, I wanna come and just lay a hand on them so that they know I'm there so that they know that when the world tells them they're alone, they are not alone. So this morning as we sing, I just invite you, if you want to come and find a place to kneel, and when you see someone go down and kneel, if you want to come and kneel behind them, lay a hand upon them, and just pray over them, say, I'm here. Vulnerability, isolation, Anxiety, oppression, these are, this is where so many of us are living. But to just be able to come before the church and say, I need to know you're behind me. Let us stand as we sing.